0: All right, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part 13 of a series of Why I'm Catholic. This one's called Mark Shot Second. So for the record, I don't care about Han Solo or whether he shot first in the cantina scene in Star Wars. I think it's just kind of a fun thing for people to argue about. It's cool. I do care about Matthew. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I'm all for Mark, too, and Luke and John. It's just that Mark didn't shoot first. Mark shot second, that's why he's second in the list. One thing cannot be denied and must be repeated. Um, Like Mark Anthony's speech at Caesar's funeral in the Shakespeare play, it starts with a line such as, I've come to bury Matthew, not to praise him. Um, This scholarship that started this process to remove Matthew as the first gospel writer started in anti-Catholic Protestant universities in Europe using very biased textual criticism that ignored all historical writing and sacred tradition. But why would they do that? Why would anyone do that? Why? Who benefits? That's the question that the Big Lebowski asked. You look to the person who will benefit. Let me beat this topic a bit longer. So first and foremost, knocking down Matthew to second or third in the order of written gospels very clearly Elevates the Protestant position or argument against Peter as being the first Pope. And it argues then against apostolic succession, because the phrases in Matthew are very strongly um they support the Catholic position. And this cannot be understated. If there's one position to attack on the Catholic Church, it's to get the papacy in checkmate. And when the direct assault of the Protestants didn't work, We kind of saw a long march through the culture to use something that's a buzzword buzz phrase today that happened in the universities. So people today can observe the socialist writers doing the same thing where you have a march through the culture as the workers of the world did not unite to overthrow capitalism and religion. So now the long atheist march through the culture is happening. Uh, Spoiler alert. At the end of both of these marches guess who will still be there? Yes, the answer is the church that Christ founded. That's the spoiler alert for this episode. As we watch the fragmentation of uh, various denominations, like the United Methodists just split again, making the word united not very uh, appropriate, um, we can watch the process of this atomization unfold. And I don't mean to make light of that either. That's um, actually something um, I'll probably talk a lot more about things like that later. This atomization, that's another buzzword today, how we're all becoming more isolated split. That's what you see. You see the splintering of things. You see the splintering happen in the, among the Baptists. Um, Yeah. So even, even this week or a couple weeks ago, as I write this, the UMC United Methodist church will soon be no longer united, but it's wedged now on the other side. The unbelievers form factions that come and go, like the Masons, the Humanists. Um, there was a positivist church a while ago, uh, the Woke, the Freethinkers. There was something called the Brights that Richard Dawkins started. Um, these things come and go. Because because why? Well, none of them are from God. Um, we are in the last days of the Masons, even, because they were always just a reaction to Catholicism anyway. Um The humanists really can't get along. They have too many uh, popes themselves. And the woke of right now are already destroying one another. The head eats the tail. One thing that always plays out is the breakdown of unity among unbelievers. And it's ugly. And why is that? It's ugly because it's not from God. The tragedy, however, in doing this takedown of the Gospel of Matthew is that these well-intentioned pope haters which is a virtue um, in some Protestant circles, they managed to undermine all of sacred scripture, not just the parts that affect the Catholic church. And there's a very nice summary of this tragedy in a book by Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker called the decline and fall of sacred scripture that just came out last year. Uh, Why does it undermine all of the gospel? Why does all of this tear down of take down of Matthew undermine all of the gospel? Because because if Matthew is written after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, when the Romans laid waste to all things Jewish, everything in Jerusalem, uh Jesus' prediction about the temple being disassembled becomes really, really weak. And if Matthew wrote this after seventy AD, which all modern biased scholarship suggests, then it makes no sense. So this is this here's from Matthew twenty-four, verses one and two. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Okay, now faithful scholarship believes Matthew was written between the years 42 and 68 AD. Especially when I quoted Irenaeus saying... Matthew was written um, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome, putting it that he was writing well before 70 when the temple went down. Um, so the faithful scholarship believes Matthew was written between 42 and 68, which makes sense with this statement and everything else above. However, scholars who lack faith place Matthew as being written after 70 AD and only that Matthew drew from quote earlier sources But the problem is that the suspicion is already branded on the text. And when scholars refer to earlier sources, they're not referring to the Hebrew version of Matthew that tradition speaks about. They're talking about mythical and hypothetical documents like Q that the Germans made up that doesn't exist. And here are the suspicions that they're trying to stoke. One, the prediction of the temple destruction was added after the fact to make Jesus look prophetic. If, we, if they stuck that in there to make Jesus predict it after it already happened, it's not much of a prediction, right? Two, that the pro-Catholic verses about Peter and the sacraments were added later to shore up the case for Catholic authority. And three, that all of the gospel is dubious at best because so much time passed that an eyewitness account is impossible or prone to many errors, you could say. And what I can never fully get my head around though is this. So all of those um, conspiracy theories, those three things I just talked about, those are some things. But here's the thing that really gets me. This one really gets me. The main argument for Mark being the first gospel is that, I wish I had a drum roll and a cymbal. Um, The reason is that Mark is shorter. Mark is shorter. The gospel of Mark is shorter. All the gospels are between 10 and 20,000 words long, but Mark is by far the shortest because it's, it's like 11,000 or something. I don't know. Now, so Mark is shorter is this uh, powerful argument of why Mark was first. And I think it's, it's really silly. The second reason is that Mark is, drum roll, and if I had a firework, I would lo- launch a mortar right here, that Mark is a weaker writer. So Mark is shorter, and Mark is a weaker writer. These are two opinions. Um, Used to prove that Mark was first. Okay. Both of these arguments can be turned around and argued against to say that Matthew was first because Matthew is longer and Matthew is a better writer. So the arguments used of Mark is shorter and Mark is a weaker writer to say that he was first, you can take the exact opposite position say Matthew's longer, Matthew's a better writer, therefore he was first. Now, these arguments for Mark shot first are inventions and bear no weight whatsoever on facts, and you can argue it until you're blue in the face without it getting anywhere, and scholars have done just that. But somehow these arguments have great staying power because scholarship has anointed these two ideas with the ink of published papers. Never mind that the journals are biased toward Mark shot first to begin with. Never mind that you probably can't get a job teaching any kind of biblical studies if you object to these two arguments, and you can read a fascinating article uh, about 19th century German hiring and firing at universities of those who didn't tow the party line. That sounds a lot like Soviet style science that was happening in the 20th century. Um, the following may come as a shock to the modern person who likes to, quote, follow the science and assumes that science and experts would never lie. They would never lie. Now, Scholars and scientists are every bit as prone to simping, scapegoating, and dry labbing facts as are religious and business people. And correcting an error in scholarship or science is like turning a super tanker around in the ocean. It takes a very long time and a lot of energy and a lot of convincing because usually no one wants to admit things are going in the wrong direction. There's too much money, time, and sunk costs to change direction. Um, the Titanic didn't sink because an iceberg hit it, okay? The Titanic sunk because it ran into an iceberg. The problem of pride in the mind and assumed perfection preceded that collision. The iceberg just happened to be the reality that smashed a false idea. Now, in praise of science, it will usually will self-correct over time because sooner or later someone calls out the liar. it becomes so obviously wrong, like in the Alzheimer research that just came out. Um, we've had, what, 20 or 30 years of bogus... Um, Alzheimer's research now, and they're chasing that down and how much, how many millions and millions of dollars have went down that toilet. Um, The researcher who produces false results will be outed, even if it takes a century. However, biblical scholarship is not biology or physics, so there's much more room for bias, just like in sociology or history or literary criticism. And the will of whoever is in power, whether it's a king or a department chair, can skew the results dramatically toward the desired outcome through wordsmithing. Even in hiring, the bias for the desired outcome of future research is accomplished at the day the contract is given, because if an academic researcher would like a job, but shows inclinations against the status quo, then their application will be passed over. Now, this is no different than the church, where an atheist cannot become a priest, But the faith of the church is laid out in full display. Um, It's The Catechism of the Catholic Church has everything in it that you could possibly want to know. Plus, there's millions of other documents. It's all public. um, Where the preachers and teachers, they must profess the faith. You cannot become a priest, obviously, if you don't believe it. And Catholic schools can hold that same rule. They definitely did not when I was there, because I'm pretty sure most of my university professors at a Catholic university were atheists. Now, in academia... This is hidden. There's a guise of free speech where anything can be taught so long as it is the truth, but there is anything but such a thing and therein lies the problem, the lies. Thus, a a bias and a motive can be protected, fenced off in these walled gardens of academia, and there is no place more fenced off in the modern world than our universities. Um, You could say they are like the modern Levites, The experts who hand down the truth and as we try to downplay moses and religious things our modern academic experts act more like moses on sinai than moses did and they even wear these these gowns and robes called lab coats in their tv interviews so that when they're being interviewed in rooms with walls bearing diplomas us lay people um can can wonder about the the amazement of the expertise or they give TED talks from on high to the plebes watching at at home on YouTube. The to the idea that we don't have religion and scientism is not a religion. I think that's ludicrous. The funny thing is, the hard sciences have a lot more credence than things like biblical criticism or literary criticism or history or sociology, which are not really sciences in the same way. So let's go back to the absurd argument of. Mark is shorter, so therefore he shot first. If I want to argue that Mark shot first because it's shorter, if I stare long and hard enough at Mark at the gospel, I will find a case and enough evidence for the outcome I'm seeking. This is the beauty of textual criticism or internal criticism, whatever you want to call it. It's an interpretive dance based solely on the evidence that you want, and it's a fantasy. On the flip side, if I want to argue that Matthew is first because it's longer, I can do that too. After all, you can spin a text into whatever you want if you just use internal evidence to the text itself. You can do this with any text. If you have an ideology you want to glue onto that text, you can do it. You just have to keep looking at it long enough. The difference, however, is that a scholar... Most likely cannot publish the findings for an argument today that Matthew, Matthew is longer and therefore first. In secular academics, to get a job teaching such things or to get accepted in a graduate program is unlikely, partially because you almost have to be an atheist to get a biblical scholar job today. You cannot have faith or let your faith bleed into anything, which is funny because the entire Bible doesn't exist without people of faith. Um, they're inspecting it like a cadaver, like a dead body instead of a inspired document. And that's the problem with modern biblical criticism. Um, It's as rigid as the Pharisees in what you are allowed to say or believe. Um, The book 1984 was written in an era of totalitarian governments, but today it applies very well to American universities and public schools where there's dogma and changing truth and relative truth. and, And this is exactly why so many teachers are leaving the profession. It's just that no one really enjoys living a lie or having the uh, sandy foundation under their feet. Now, I'm a former English major. Uh, I never finished. I had one class short, but it didn't seem to matter for my employment purposes. And I'll say this pointing at myself. The spin problem, the spinning of, of text, is why you never really want English majors being the navigators for your nation. Um, they can spin gold into straw very easily, but they cannot spin straw into gold. They can only spin. So I'm talking about English majors in literary criticism, biblical criticism, etc. They spin and toil and undo things, but by and large, they do not create anything or typically inspire anything. The, a career is made of unpacking and teasing out meaning and calling out prejudices and pointing out oppression, but never producing or making anything. Um, lit crit and biblical crit at the modern university is full of morality, guilt, and finger pointing to the point that three modern academics were able to publish several hoax papers on grievance studies that were accepted mainly because of their use on ridiculous postmodern jargon. So if you've... The grievance study hoax papers is something you might want to Google. I've linked to it. Uh, it's, it's quite hilarious uh, because of what they were able to point out about this kind of the emperor's wearing no clothes type of thing. But the quote is, that this trio of scholars set out with the intent to expose problems in what they called grievance studies, referring to academic areas where they claim a culture has developed in which only certain conclusions are allowed and put social grievances ahead of objective truth. Okay, now, with the humanities and free fall as it is, the jig is kind of up on modern scholarship since it's reaching a tipping point, like a last phase where the head becomes too heavy for the body to carry it any longer. So when we reach a point in society where the workers of the world unite, but not in the way that intellectuals like Karl Marx thought it would, um, the workers are, go- are uniting because they're tired of pulling the cart and being told they are the evil ones. So let me get off that soapbox. For, mo- for the most part, I try not to worry about this long attack on Matthew. Jesus warned us not to worry. And one thing is for sure, even if Matthew hadn't been written at all and we were still simply rolling by oral tradition, the message of Christ, it would still be growing because... It is from God and nothing on this earth, nothing in this world can halt what is from God. That's the famous part where um, one of the high priests says, no, let them talk. If it's from God, it will continue. If it's not, it will die out. And he names off like three other fake messiahs that came and, and nothing panned out from it. Jesus warned us. He warned us about spinning and toiling and he used clothing as an example And clothing is even a metaphor in the Garden of Eden to hide our nakedness. Our reputations and opinions are kind of like clothing, where we fashion these elaborate fig leaves to cover ourselves. Jesus warns us to knock it off and and quit worrying. He says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. He warns us about men of little faith, and he says... But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. So I should really just stop bothering about the fact that Matthew shot first, because I know that tradition tells us his gospel was first, and having faith means trusting in sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium of the the church. I know that. I know that. And yet, sometimes I let it bother me because the real reason behind all of this is not a search for the truth, but a search for an outcome. An obvious aim of this kind of scholarship from the start has been to undermine the church and that it remains so to this day. Now whether it comes from the cynicism of unbelievers or the broadsides of Protestants, the desired outcome is the capitulation of the Bishop of Rome, aka the Pope, the uh, Pope, currently Pope Francis, who's on the chair of Peter on the rock of the church that Christ founded in Matthew 16. Um, And clearly scholars will not destroy the church because Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So they can certainly try to undermine it, but ultimately will fail. And they are failing now. It seems like the chips are down on the church all the time. There's a lot of drama, a lot of things going on. People are worried, but it will not fail. It will play out exactly exactly as every other attempt to destroy the church has played out and that it will be messy but the church will remain when the dust settles just as is ahead has outlasted every other heresy every other empire every other tactic to take it down now this campaign over the last two centuries has produced thousands of papers and articles on this thing they call the synoptic problem or mark and priority um None of these things were a problem until modern scholarship made it into one. And in the same universities that brought us the sad philosophy and ideas that conjured 20th century Germany, China, and the Soviet Union, and all of their related horrors, um, they are related to this type of, this type of uh, growth in, in academia the stoking of the will to power didn't just happen in political nationalism and social Darwinism and Marxist revolutions. It happened most definitely in biblical scholarship as well. And so now they meant it for bad, but as always, God will in the end use it for good. And this is how I, how God deals with rascals like Julius Wellhausen and Gottlieb Storr. He will do so with the modern doubters, too, like Bart Ehrman and Richard Dawkins and all of their atheist disciples. And what we need to do is just pray for those people. That's it. Um, Let them mock away. That's fine. That's their only thing they got. Let them mock. Go ahead. The funny thing about scholarship search for truth that wants to debunk Christianity is that they often end up organizing and collating information better so that new insights to sacred scripture and sacred tradition can be found. In other words, the unbelievers and anti-Catholics help the faithful writers at Catholic Answers or Word on Fire or I Like Ancient Faith is an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox um, uh, site. Um, They end up writing better books on the truth of Christ because of this scholarship. And the anti-Catholics are like Joseph's 11 brothers in Genesis that throw him down the well and sell him into slavery only to find out later that Joseph ended up thriving while they starved. In short. There was a great incentive, or there is great incentive, to crush Catholicism um, in Lutheran Germany, and from the time of old Gottlieb Storr, when he first whispered the idea of Mark shot first in 1786. Unsurprisingly, for any philo- philosophy geeks, this connection will um, kind of be fun a fun one. One of Storr's students was none other than Hegel, who was the muse of Karl Marx. So... I think this is really interesting that the, the person that came up with Mark shot first, Gottlieb Storer, um, had a student of Hegel who inspired Karl Marx. You have to marvel at it, really, the connections. Um, the Protestant and atheist mess we are in today is the product of a lot of cross-pollination and rebellion. And I wanted to say inbreeding, but that would be uncharitable. And so I'm trying not to do that. I'm doing Exodus 90 right now. That's definitely off the table. Okay, but I already said it now, so it's out. Uh, Anyway, what's interesting to me is that these Hatfields and McCoys are actually kind of in the same family, as the Protestant Gottlieb store begat the unbelieving, unbelieving Hegel, and Hegel begat the atheist Marx, and Marx begat Nietzsche, and Nietzsche begat Sartre, and Sartre begat Derrida, and Derrida begat Foucault. And Foucault begat the many-headed monster of wokeism. These are the names. All right. So uh, when Bismarck in the 19th century Germany, and they when they were consolidating power, this little snowball rolled and rolled and rolled and has been so successful that by the time I got to a Catholic university in 1995, for which I want my money back, I learned about Marken Priority which is a fancy way of saying Mark shot first. And if only that were the worst of it, the Mark shot first theory is not only taught in Catholic colleges. No Mark shot first is taught in the church's official, the American bishops official Bible footnotes, the new American Bible. Yes, this may, this is something I don't quite lose sleep over, but it's disturbing. The New American Bible, which we all get at Confirmation if you grow up Catholic, the Bible translation itself is fine. It's the footnotes. It's the footnotes that really need to go and the footnotes that destroy faith. You cannot read a page of Matthew in the New American Bible without the writer of the footnotes mentioning the hypothetical Q source. And again, Q doesn't exist. And if Q was anything, it was Aramaic Matthew or Hebrew Matthew. Further, the writer of these footnotes mentions Mark in priority and Mark as the source for Matthew. So the Bible, this the red New American Bible with these footnotes is given to confirmation students across America. It's everywhere. They're given out like a medal, a rite of passage at confirmation. I've thrown mine out and so should you and get a new one. Get the Ignatius study Bible or something, um, something else. Get the Navarre study Bible. Get the Didache Bible, where there's footnotes that will actually help you build your faith rather than destroy it. Um, Sorry, but that's my rant for the U.S. bishops. Get a new footnotes. Get new footnotes. Whatever you have with those, just burn them. I don't know. Get rid of them. I guess uh, I can breathe a sigh of relief here because most Catholics don't actually read the Bible. So that's my. That's one for the Protestants. I'm. I don't always pick on the protesters. In fact, I often admire the faith of many, many Protestants, especially evangelicals, Lutherans, whatever. So I just disagree with them and I see the fullness of the faith in the Catholic Church and the attacks are endless. Um, there's a great book called Catholicism and Fundamentalism, which pretty much gives the laundry list of attacks on the church by fundamentalists, but I do admire the faith that many of those people have absolutely especially their small groups how they get together it's cool all right now okay so I'll, I'll get off this usccb the catholic bishops website for the united states um i do hope that they they get a better version of footnotes for it though that's that's my request um, i'm not requesting that you go and burn your new american bible Please don't, and don't say that I said that, but just go get an Ignatius study Bible with those footnotes, and that is a nice Catholic study Bible that is faithful to the scripture and tradition. Again, the New American Bible is fine, but the footnotes must have been written by like my liberal arts professors who hadn't been to Mass in 20 years, so probably ever since they received their New American Bible with the footnotes in it. Matthew shot first. Okay. Okay. Matthew shot first. I know. Okay. Let's move on. As I've mentioned before in the Bible, in the commandments and in the story of creation, order matters. And the order of which the four evangelists wrote also matters greatly. The ordering of them in the form of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John doesn't just roll off the tongue. It's also the order in which they came to be on paper. And even if Matthew was translated from Hebrew into Greek, he was first. He's always been first and the early church had no reason to pretend this was the case, unlike the scholars who tried to upend history by twisting words. One thing that should be an immediate head-scratcher for you is this. If Christianity started in Jerusalem, where Christ was crucified, effectively on Pentecost, and most of the initial arguments were with Jews and Christ's followers, then why would Mark, written in Greek, be the first? It started in Jerusalem. That's where they were converting people initially. Seems like that's where they would have wrote the first one. Anyway, warning. One warning before we get to this final part here. If you attend a university, almost any university, if your kids will go to university or your grandchildren, you will never hear these following arguments. This is all hidden from you as the modern biblical scholars have buried these things. In 1995, I was taught only mark and priority at a Catholic college of all places, and the great thing about truth, however, is that it cannot be buried forever. My hope is that someday, just as the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by some kids throwing rocks in caves in Qumran, Israel, that another jar will turn up in Israel somewhere, and inside it will be Aramaic Matthew, the one we've all been looking for, and then all of this scholarship, and I mean all of it, will turn to dust because Matthew shot first, I'm leaving a long link here for all of the reasons why Matthew was first, starting with external evidence and then internal evidence. And this is from hermeneutics.stackexchange.com of why Mathian priority is correct, that Matthew shot first. It has the quotes from Papias, Origen, Irenaeus, Eusebius, and Jerome. Um, There's another link I could add, but there is ample evidence for Matthew being first and it it matches all of the tradition and I think it's important to read these things because you will not get this if you go to college um even the didache one of the earliest christian documents um has Matthew kind of written all over it it relies on Matthew it's very clear so Matthew's quoted far more frequently than Mark in all the 2nd century christian writings um, it's just, there's much to be seen about it. And I have a very lengthy thing here at the end uh, that you might want to read through or go to the link. And I really hope that I carried this through for you, that you can believe that Matthew shot first. And again, Han Solo, I'll leave that to the other people on the internet to argue about. I'm not as concerned about that. So thank you for joining. Thanks for listening to Why Did Peter Sink? We'll be back with more on this series in the next episode.